I've got a very active generative mind and I'm always solving problems. And I think the art of inventing a good product is to be able to effectively separate your good ideas from your bad ideas. A lot of people marry themselves to bad ideas because they love it and because it was their idea. So if ever I come up with an idea, I'm extremely hard on it. I try and disprove it in every conceivable way. So probably the first 15 or 20 times I thought of this while I was learning golf or ruminating on golf, I did some base calculations on cost and what it was going to cost to install, how much it was going to cost the maintenance aspect, and looked at the driving ranges in my area and thought, you know what, this is an expensive piece of equipment, it's really not going to work. So I kept pushing the idea away. And it wasn't until I came up with the idea of charging a penny a ball for the system and putting it in free of charge that I started to like it. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thanks so much for joining us, and please subscribe to the show so you hear all the upcoming episodes and you can enter our latest golf product giveaway. Before we get started here, I wanted to thank one of our supporting partners, Golf Genius Software, for helping bring you this episode. Golf Genius Software powers tournament management at thousands of private clubs, public courses, resorts, and golf associations all over the world. So if you're a golf course operator who wants to do less work, have more fun, and generate more revenue, check them out online at golfgenius.com. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Martin Wyeth, entrepreneur and founder of PowerTea. PowerTea is the world's premier automated teen system and is currently installed in over 60% of the golf ranges in the UK and Europe including four Ryder Cup venues and the home of golf, St. Andrews. So with that introduction, Martin, hey, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Wonderful, Colin. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation too. We jumped on a Zoom call a couple of days ago and got a feel for your entrepreneurial backstory. And anybody that has listened to the podcast knows myself as an entrepreneur. I love these stories of how you've led up to everything you've done leading up to Power to you, which we are going to talk about. But I want to start with the backstory. And the first backstory, Martin, I want us to talk about is your connection to golf. Please tell us the first time you ever had a golf club in your hand and what that experience was like. Well, Colin, I'm, I can't tell you the first time that I actually had a club in my hand because I really can't distinguish that, but I can definitely tell you my first solid golfing memory. Okay, great. I was between the ages of, I guess, five and eight. I can narrow that down because of the house we were living in and, and where the incident took place. My father had bought me a set of hickory shafted golf clubs in a canvas bag, which I'm pretty sure had moth holes in it. <laughs> and he sort of cut them down for me, rewrapped the leather grips, which were pretty shiny, and let me loose in the back garden with them, which wasn't a big back garden. I think he envisaged chipping and the likes, and, and I did chip and messed around, I guess. But the, the thing that sticks in my memory is winding up with one of these clubs and, and actually connecting with it. And it, it came out so solidly, it came out very low. It hit a stone ornament at the end of the garden. It soared into the air and it actually landed on the next door neighbor's roof, bounced down the roof and ended up in their yard. I went over to the neighbor, happened to be in the garden, and I asked him if he could pass my ball back over. When he found it, he said, how did this ball get in here? And I told him, oh, it just hit a stone and bounced over the fence 
into your yard. <laughs> I didn't mention that it had visited his roof. And he was absolutely disbelieving that that, that could happen. And so that's my very first golf memory. Fortunately, I didn't get into trouble for it. Well, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that with us. Now, I'm assuming after that, it was no more backyard garden for you. It was off to the driving range or a golf course after that. Did your dad play golf? So did he then take you out? Or was that a couple years later before you were out on an actual golf course? We played maybe a handful of times at, at pitch and putts. And I, I think he was a busy guy. He used to work a lot in the evenings. So yeah, didn't play as much golf. I would have played every day, I, I think, with him if I could have done. But yeah, we played a few times. I didn't really revisit the game properly until I was well into my 20s. Got it. Got it. So let's fast forward a little bit here. So I want to hear a bit about your business career and perhaps early entrepreneurship endeavors that have led you up to what you're doing now. So have you always been a tinkerer or or someone that's been interested in in creating products and finding solutions to problems? So so what what is your background before we get into PowerTea that's led you up to the culmination of the launch of PowerTea? Yeah, in, in the fabric of my being, I'm an, I'm an engineer, a problem solver, studied electronics, and have always been passionate about electronics. Just really fascinated by the whole business of what you can do with electronics. From my very, very young age, I built robots and bits and bobs, calculators, and studied electronics at university. And once I graduated, I really specialized in designing products that were new on the cutting edge, things that people haven't done before. And with PowerT, now that I've seen that, I've seen some of the videos and with your ambassador, Jim Furick, endorsing the product, looking at what you've created here, which looks like an elegantly simple solution to a problem that it's like, well, why hasn't someone looked at this before? I'm sure the whole process of designing this is complicated and nuanced, and that has led to why it looks so elegantly simple here. So let's talk about this. What pain point, and we talk about this with entrepreneurs all the time, you want to make sure that you're creating a solution that actually solves a problem. So what was your aha moment and how how long ago was that that you got the first idea for something like Power Tea that there was a problem and you had to come up with a solution here? So tell us about that, please. To sort of answer the first point, it actually has been done before. There are patents dating back to 1907 for automated golf tees. And I've sort of encountered maybe 20 or 30 of them since I've been doing this in the last 25 years. But what no one's ever done is really done it properly or or reliably in such a way that it can be rolled out. I think that's the difference. So that's point one. As far as the aha moment, I was learning how to play golf for an engagement at the Wentworth Club. And I'd had my first series of lessons from a PGA pro. I was going down the checklist for every shot, left hand, right hand, alignment, knees bent, posture. Everyone who's had beginner lessons knows the drill. And I then hit the golf ball. My bad shot was a big slice, an incredible slice. I then let go of the golf club, pick up a ball, put it on the tee, go through the same process and get a completely different result. And having a sort of diagnostic mind, I really was getting frustrated, trying to identify what was the cause of the slice versus the great golf shot. Right. And it occurred to me that if the ball were automatically replenished, you wouldn't need to change everything between shots. 
So in engineering terms, if you have a system that you want to either improve or it's not working and you want to diagnose it, then you only ever change one thing at a time. And I guess the best analogy for that would be if you were the head of a racing team, a NASCAR or Formula One, and you're at the practice track, you send the car around on five laps, you measure its time. You wouldn't then bring it in, change the tyre compound, change the engine settings, change the aerofoils, change the driver and send it back out to see if it was faster or slower. Because whether it was faster or slower, you wouldn't know which change made the impact. The aerofoils may cancel out the tyre compound. So you really would change one thing at a time. And I was trying to bring that concept to practising golf allowing me to really focus in on right hand, left hand, weight distribution, foot position. And then each time you swing the club, you're only changing one thing at a time. I love this. So what you've done, because there's so many variables that you touched on, there are dozens and dozens of variables and many in that pre-shot routine that you touched on, that if you eliminated most of those there, so you're ready to go as the ball just appears just as it did the previous shot, that you're ready to go. You've eliminated a lot of those pieces that can go wrong. We know with a golf swing, things can go wrong very quickly in a hurry. And the other thing I love that you touched on here in the entrepreneurship or startup space, we refer to that as A-B testing or split testing, where yes, you're changing one variable and then testing it to two different groups to see which one resonates, which one does better. And as, as you touched on there, if you change two things, you don't know which one of them worked and which one doesn't. So you have to change one variable at a time. So I agree with that 100%. It's a really simple concept and it works. The pros call it searching if they're trying to improve their game, but they're so disciplined and they're so skilled with their setup routine that they don't make mistakes with the basics. When you're starting golf, you're really not capable of getting back into the same position for every shot. So having Powerty there to help you with that process, and also for more advanced golfers, it saves you a lot of time. If you're working on swing path, once you know your feet are set up and you know what parallelogram you want to stand in, you set the alignment system up and that will just keep you there. So it's one less thing you have to think about when you're practicing. Right, right. Of course. Absolutely. So, okay. So you had this idea in your mind there. You saw that your swing with, with a bad slice and one that you actually hit it right down the middle. You needed to find a solution that would eliminate some of those variables. So as they say in entrepreneurship, having an idea is less than 1% of what it takes to actually bring something to market or make it happen. Execution is everything. So tell us the, the next piece of the journey then, Martin, of then when you go from having that in your mind that you said, you know what, I'm actually going to physically build something and start to tinker. I'm assuming this was, as they call a side hustle. You're doing this out of your garage or wherever that was. So, so tell us about that, the first version 1.0 prototype proof of concept of PowerT and how long ago that was. So my narrative, I guess, on invention is quite funny. You say 1% one, 1 is inspiration. I, can't, I think it was Edison that was the 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. I think in my case, it was probably more like 0 0.01 inspiration and perspiration took up the rest. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a very active generative mind and I'm always solving problems. And I think the art of inventing a good product is to really be able to effectively separate your good ideas from your bad ideas mm -hmm. a lot of people marry themselves to bad ideas because they love it and because it was their idea so if ever i come up with an idea i'm extremely hard on it 
I try and disprove it in every conceivable way. So probably the first 15 or 20 times I thought of this while I was learning golf or ruminating on golf, I did some base calculations on cost and what it was going to cost to install, how much it was going to cost the maintenance aspect, and looked at the driving ranges in my area and thought, you know what, this is an expensive piece of equipment, it's really not going to work. So I kept pushing the idea away. And it wasn't until I came up with the idea of charging a penny a ball for the system and putting it in free of charge that I started to like it because it removes the barrier to entry for the golf facility. They don't have to write you out a big check. And if you look at your business plan, it creates an ongoing revenue stream, which allows you to maintain the equipment and keep everything working and keep your company healthy as well, not constantly having to sell. So once I'd had that idea, and I believe I had it independently, I've since learned that Xerox really launched that model with the photocopier of a penny a copy. That's what made Xerox the company it is today. So having had that idea, I built a prototype. Being an engineer, maybe if I spent more than 100 bucks on it, I'd be surprised. So built this clunky prototype that delivered the ball from underground, multiple tee heights. And the moment you hit the ball, the tee disappears below ground and brings you up a new one. Having built that prototype, we started showing it to golfers and just saying, hey, what do you think? And the reaction of the golfers was just incredible. It's, wow, this is fantastic. Where and when can I use it? So that was the start of a very, very long road. Well, I like what you did in the early days and with entrepreneurs now, and I, I'm teaching some right now that are early stage fledgling entrepreneurs about that business side of this is don't create something that doesn't have a business model behind it, even though the users may love this, but if you don't have any buyers, and in this case, your buyers, your customers, a penny a ball are per use are the driving ranges and the facilities and the clubs here, then you really don't have a business. And it sounds like you spent time very early on going out there, having conversations between who would be the buyers and who would be the users and getting feedback from them to help improve your product and improve your business model. It sounds like that's what you did in the early days, yes? Yeah, I, I think having got the initial excitement from the prototype, we built a trailer which had some demo units on it and I started trawling it around the UK, showing it to range owners to get their feedback. And I think out of 20 ranges that I showed it to, six of them expressed a really strong interest in buying the product when it was ready for installation. And slowly the wheels turned. Nice. For context here, how many years ago was that that you got your first version into some facilities? So probably the idea was 27, 28 years ago. The first machines were installed about 25 years ago at a country club, not a commercial driving range. Okay. The reaction when there was only three of them were installed, they were all right-handed units and people were traveling from up to 50 miles to come and use them, which in Great Britain is phenomenal because the density of golf facilities is so high that to drive 50 miles, you're going to pass at least four, five, six golf courses. Right. And people were doing that just to come and experience the product. So immensely popular with the consumer. That's the type of reaction and the feedback you want. As you said, you did that over 20 years ago. You did something that most people weren't doing or didn't even know about, the lean startup methodology of creating a, what they call a minimum viable product, getting it out in market with only a couple of features and it's not perfect, not waiting until you think it's shiny and perfect and there is no perfect you just got it out there and you got a tremendous reaction and feedback 
So what was the feedback you got from people watching them and observing that were using it back in the, the early days? What were those magical moments or the things that made them light up and smile the most about PowerTea? Do you know what? Even to this day, 25 years later, I really can't put my finger on what excites people so much about it. Children absolutely love seeing the ball come out of the hole. Huh. They like seeing it come up on the tee. Adults, even today, because we're fairly new in America, we put it in a new area. Within 10 minutes of putting it in, you'll see people stop practicing, get their cell phone out and phone their friend and say, you've got to come down and see this thing. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I think the way we do it, we install them into the ground and they're flush and they're very simple. So there's an element of magic to it. The ball sort of emerges from the ground and then gently arrives at the right tee height. It's very smooth. There have been tons of machines which sort of drop the ball on the tee with a mechanical arm or they bring it out sideways or they roll it along a groove in the mat. And none of those systems really create anything like the excitement that Power Tee does. So I think doing it properly definitely helped us. But my inkling is that by allowing golfers to sort of stay upright and stay focused on what they're doing with the golf club, they just hit the ball that much better. If you hit a good golf shot, you don't have to change everything. You don't let go of the golf club. You don't lose your position. You don't lose your train of thought, particularly with grass. Every time you move, the ball gets dirty. The club gets dirty with each hit. Your feet are going in and out of divots. It's very, very difficult to be consistent. Whereas when you're on power tee, it really brings out that consistency that golfers crave. Nice. So from the business model standpoint here, so you mentioned it, it's not unlike online ads where you pay per click model here in a way you've got a pay per ball here, which is great for the owners because there's no upfront cost for them and no risk. So you don't have to build up all that trust and that social proof that, that the business model works because you just install it. If I just do some rough math here, and I may be off here, let's say a bucket of balls, this way and divide easily. Let's say there's 100 balls, and let's say it's $10 for that large bucket of balls. See, like I do the math. So that's 10 cents a ball. I'm assuming every ball that's hit, Power T gets one cent for every ball. So you basically get 10% of all balls hit. Is that, that how your business model then works? Yeah, I mean, we don't charge on a strike fee now. In order to get funding to grow the business, the banks won't finance a variable revenue stream. Mm. So what we do is we charge basically seven bucks a day per machine, which is a flat fee. The way the range owner usually covers that cost is by adding a dollar to the price of a bucket. So if a bucket of balls is 10 bucks, they'll put the price up to 11 or 12. The consumers are enormously happy with that. We surveyed consumers up the East Coast of America during the recession, actually. We surveyed about 500 consumers, showed them the product and said, hey, how much extra would you pay if we were to bring this product to your driving range? And the average turned out to be around $2 a bucket. So what we see operators do now is they put in a bank of power tees. They'll uplift their bucket price by about $2 large maybe $2 medium and a dollar for a small bucket. And what that does, that pays the rental cost. So we calculate the number of machines that go in so it fits with that price rise. And then the way the range owner makes their profit is that rental includes the cost of the mats. So the mats are thrown in, the tees are thrown in, and the consumers naturally hit a lot more golf balls. In over the 25 years we've been doing this, 
the range owners come back and say anything from 20 to 30 percent more volume gets hit and that's pure profit yes so it's a very profitable system for, for the people that employ it it seems to me it's it's simple math when you frame it that way and in my head you said seven dollars a day per bay per mat 365 days in the year so roughly i'm looking what's that about 2500 dollars a year perfect yeah around that and just looking at yeah 30% throughput over that year during peak and, and lower periods averaging that I'm sure they just the number of balls the throughput that they have with buckets they probably get an extra I don't know you tell me is an extra five thousand ten thousand dollars for every single bay that they have there just because of the throughput so for them it makes complete sense it's a better experience and they generate more revenue right absolutely and, and you get certain ranges which are very busy they might have a limited number of bays because people aren't messing around looking for the right tee height, they're not fiddling around putting balls on tee, typically they'll hit about 40% more balls per hour. So in straight revenue terms, even if you factor out the price rise, the output per bay goes up by 40% at peak times. So anyone who's really struggling for capacity, yeah. it's a no-brainer. Absolutely. Nice. Now, of course, we're on an audio podcast, so we can't show any video clips to demonstrate what the experience would be like although afterwards you and I at the end of this we're going to jump on a video interview for our Mod Golf YouTube channel so we'll have a chance to show some footage there for our viewers so I encourage all of our listeners to jump over there we will include the link to our YouTube video in the show notes so since we have to paint this picture with your words here Martin describe for us the experience let's say I walk up for the first time I've never seen Power Tea before I heard about it it's like wow great it's open I can do this what would the experience be like for me using power T when I've got my seven iron in my hand to take that first swing? So first of all, you would buy your bucket of balls from either the ball dispenser or, or the range operator. And when you arrive at the bay with power T in it, there's a black plastic cover that is in the corner of the mat, which you lift up and you pour your balls in. The balls then go through into the machine. It detects them and starts up and then a ball will arrive in short order on the tee coming from below the mat. Once you see the ball, you can press a tee height button to get the exact tee height you want. So you select the tee height, you want a seven iron. If you want to hit that off of the tee, you can. The lowest tee height is about a sixteenth of an inch. So a lot of beginners will hit their irons off of that tee. Or there's two really wonderful quality mats, which are extremely forgiving. They don't stick to the back of the club. They don't grab or snatch. In fact, it's one of the things that Furic likes most about our product is the quality of the mats. So you can either hit it off the tee or off a, a long fibrous mat or off of a very tight pile of mats. Once you've got it where you want to hit it, you hit the ball. And by the time it lands in the outfield, there'll be a new ball on the tee ready for you. Love it. And I wanted to ask you this. I was watching the videos. I was intrigued and a little bit perplexed on how this would work. Do you have sensors or how does it know when to provide the next ball? Because you, sometimes you may hit one within two seconds. You may, I don't know, decide to choose another club and wait 20 seconds. How does it know when to provide you with another ball? Is there a sensor for that? Or tell us about that a little bit. It's fun that you've spotted that through the videos. It's one of the things we enjoy teasing the golfers with a little bit because they can never 
never work it out. Um, <laughs> one of the curses of the automatic golf tee is the golfer. You're in a golf range full of amateur golfers. They're not very skilled. Some of them are pretty strong. And there's the odd one or two have got a very bad temper. Right. So, you know, your machine will get an extremely vibrant life. It's full of impact. It's full of shock. People will jump on them. I've seen people hit the ball down the hole and so on and so forth. So traditionally, the way people have detected balls on tees is with a weighing mechanism. So a small cantilever or seesaw, if you like. And that requires a very loose mechanism because the ball only weighs about an ounce or two. Yes. So to try and measure that weight in this environment, and you're not only dealing with the shock and the vibration, you're dealing with dirt, sand, high temperatures, low temperatures. Mm -hmm. So that detection method has been an enormous source of poor reliability for people to combat with. And it also makes the mechanism very sloppy and not very pleasant to either listen to because they rattle when you hit the ball and the ball comes up in a very unpleasant manner. So I didn't want the poor reliability. I didn't want the sloppy delivery. I can't remember entirely how I came up with the idea, but we use a radar that measures the swing speed of the golf club. And we also use a microphone to listen for impact. And we have quite a complicated algorithm running inside the machine constantly that's overlaying the soundtrack on top of the radar. And if you just see the movement of the club, but you don't hear a sound, what you're seeing is a practice swing. If you just hear the sound, but there's no movement, then you're probably hearing the golfer in the bay next door. But when you see both the swing and right in the middle of the swing, you hear the whack, then you're pretty confident that your golfer has just hit his golf ball. And that's what triggers it to go down and get you a new ball. And that system is really good on many levels because it means all of the sensitive stuff associated with strike detection is actually mounted away from the golfer off the ground in the control panel. So it gives us a level of reliability that is unsurpassed in the industry. And it also brings another layer of magic to the product. So when you drag your ball off, you're not looking at two balls so the machine doesn't immediately trigger and so while you're trying to set up for your shot, you're looking at a, a ball coming out of the ground. The machine stays nice and quiet, and it's only when you hit the ball that it gets you a new one. Nice. So I watched the video, and I was thinking, have they built this technology so it actually does that, or are they just faking this in the video? And I'm glad to hear that you've actually solved that problem. That's part of the delight that you're providing in the experience with the technology and the algorithm that you built there. It reminds me, if you, if you had balls that were continually coming up and starting to overflow all over the place, it's almost like this assembly line. I'm going to age myself here. It reminds me of a, an old Lucille Ball episode, black and white from years ago, where her and her friend are, are working in a factory on the production line line and everything's going wrong and all this stuff is piling up and, and of course it's just this absolute mess. You don't have that Lucille Ball problem of having lots of balls all over the place just oozing out everywhere. It sounds like you've managed to figure that one out. We did have a competitor a few years ago that, that rolled a ball down a track in the mat and it landed in a cup which centered it on the tee and when the cup got deformed the ball would lip out and the tee would detect that the ball was not there so it would, it would send another one and then another one. So these poor golfers would be standing there with balls firing at them and not really not knowing what to do if you knew how to handle it you could just 
stop the ball with your club and centre it on the tee and, it, and the machine right, will behave. Right, right. Yeah, you have to dodge that bullet. Sounds like a design flaw. Sounds like that maybe they needed an engineer, but but you've got one, so you don't have that problem. You've got that solved here. We don't. My pedigree as an engineer has made us viable. I love it. If I'd have just been a golfer who'd had the idea and I'd had to pay for the engineering, I think we'd have been bankrupt 10 times over. Yeah, and that, that's such a great insight you provided there, Martin, there for all people that have an idea considering entrepreneurship. Whatever you can build yourself, I have an architecture and design background, so I focus on providing those pieces to add value for all the things that we do in the entrepreneurship space and bring on the other people when you need them. But if you can build as much as you possibly can with your own skills, your own brain and your own bare hands, that's the best way to move it forward during that early stage of what they call bootstrapping, paying for it yourself to try to get a product in market and commercialize. It sounds like you've done exactly that. So, hey, I've got so many more questions to ask you here. I did want to hold off to save some of them, some different questions for our video interview. But I did want to end with this one because you touched on this in our previous conversation. Because in entrepreneurship, especially with products, it's not perfect, nor should it be or can it be at the very beginning. So go back again to the first experience you had of when you had those uh, people would drive 50 miles to experience Power T for the first time. But everything didn't necessarily go right. Tell us about things either mechanically that didn't work out or perhaps assumptions that you made that needed more insight and more user feedback on. So tell us about your first iteration of the product and some of the things that worked and perhaps didn't work. That's wonderful. That's a really great question in terms of of my journey. So having got past the prototype stage to the, what I would call the commitment stage, where you say, okay, we got something here, the consumer loves it, we're going to go for it. I decided to make the first system hydraulic which if you want anything to work in a tough environment, good steer or tractor, there's going to be some hydraulics involved. And I felt that by lifting the ball with with a hydraulic cylinder at low pressures, and you have to be low pressure because obviously people's fingers are going to be around, around the ball coming up, I felt that that was going to be the way to establish confidence with the range owners and also the business methodology the thought in my mind was let's make this thing indestructible Mm -hmm. because i was engineering it for this paper usage obviously we didn't want it to break down because if it's broken down it's not earning you money so the methodology was let's make this thing indestructible so i set about it we designed a low pressure hydraulic cylinder We used a lot of pneumatic fittings because they're cheaper than hydraulic fittings, but they work, particularly at low pressures. Right. And we built this machine and I set it up in the basement of my house with an auto return mechanism. So it just kept on pushing balls through and they'd cycle around through the hopper and you could hear it through the whole house. You'd get this clunk, boing, roll sound. And I kept that machine running for eight weeks straight, day and night. And in that time period, it served around two million golf balls. We got to the end of the two million ball test and I got the micrometer out, measured the wear and looked at the bits and bobs and thought, how clever am I? This thing's magnificent, barely showing any signs of wear. So we built that mechanism into a a mat carrying platform. So the mats rested on top and the mechanism was underneath. We've always been that way. We dug some holes in the floor of the local driving range that had agreed to test it for us. And we put these three machines in and they got literally destroyed within a week. (laughs) It was fascinating. So the mat where the ball comes up ended about two feet behind the golf ball. 
So you're there as an engineer thinking, well, look, the golf ball's about one and three quarter inches or whatever. Right. It's 42 millimeters. And if the guy is missing it by two feet, he really needs to take up a new hobby. The hopper lid was there and it was getting destroyed. In fact, they got destroyed, all three of them, by people hitting three feet behind the ball. So it took us about a month. We had to take the machines out. We had to elongate the hole that we'd cut. There was a bit of tooling involved. So we had to make new mold tools, new liners, new bits and bobs to get that hopper lid back. And then we learned about the mats ripping around the hole. So the mats were only really lasting a week or two. And the vibration of the golfers hitting down on our machine was absolutely staggering. Right. So all the nuts and bolts we used to hold it together were just normal nuts and bolts. And over a period of a week, they would all fall off from the vibration. <laughs> yes. So we'd go back to the machines a week after putting them in, lift it up, and there's a handful of nuts and bolts in the bottom of the machine. And we're thinking, someone's been in here, I'm doing things. What's this all about? Wow. But it's just pure vibration. That was in the first few weeks. But then as you rolled it out a few months, then brackets that were holding optical receivers would stress fracture with the vibration. So you'd have metal actually breaking and splitting and, and parting. A solid piece of metal with the constant vibration would split. And so it was an, just an incredible high-speed, constant re-engineering to get that product to anything like stable. It really did take six months of constant finessing to get it to a point where, hey, this thing is now working the majority of the time. And that same system, sort of six months hence, we sold, I think, about 350 to 380 of them across 30 sites. They still broke down for whatever reason. Huh. It might be dirt, it might be animals, it might be misuse. But they would break down. And because it was one machine, you had to actually go and fix it. So we had engineers driving all over the country to keep these things running. And whilst our customers, the golfers loved it, you know, they didn't care if it broke down. <laughs> they find another one. But the customers were saying to us, look, this machine is wonderful. It's making me an awful lot of money, but it's really hard work to keep it going. So we knew really then that we had to re-engineer the system. I, I guess that rounds out the answer to your question. I love, love that. And it just reinforces the notion that you'll have failures along the way, but you learn the most and then are able to propel yourself forward, whether it's redesigning early on. And that's exactly what you did. And that iteration design loop there of building on that over the next six months and the next six months to arrive years later of where you are with Power T now. And believe me, I, I can't wait till you get some of these up in Canada or the, the Vancouver area so I can try them out. Hopefully, Martin, that happens very soon soon. Wow, I've just enjoyed this snapshot of your personal and entrepreneurial journey here with Power Tea that started in uh, your parents' backyard garden there, hitting some golf balls off of rocks, leading you to Florida now, where you are taking Power Tea to the next level. So hey, Martin, why don't we end it here? Because like I said, we do want to save a, a couple of things for our video interview. We're going to ask some fun questions there also. So before we leave here, why don't you let our listeners know where they can learn more about PowerTea? Thank you very much, Colin. Our website is the place to go. It's www.powertea.com. Simple as that. There we go. In social media, are you active anywhere there on uh, Instagram or, or Twitter or Facebook? We are active on Facebook and we, I, I believe we have Instagram accounts as well, but most of the stuff we post is through Facebook. 
Got it, got it. Well, as I always do, I will include the links you just mentioned there in the show notes for this episode and also on your bio page. So it's easy for our listeners to find all that good information about Power Tea. And I just realized, I just looked at your tagline, raise your game. And then I just realized you're raising the ball. Oh, that's that's clever. That's a good tagline. I've heard a lot of bad taglines. Raise your game. Well done. I like that. It's raise your game, lower your score. Oh, it's even more than that. It keeps getting better. There you go. Power T, raise your game, lower your score. <laughs> I love it. All right. Martin Wayeth, CEO, founder, owner at Power T. Enjoy this conversation. I always enjoy conversations about entrepreneurship and you certainly uh, fit snugly into that category also. So Martin, hey, thanks for joining us today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time, Colin. I've enjoyed it. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Martin Wyeth, the founder and CEO of PowerTea. If you'd like to learn more about Martin and PowerTea, visit our episode show page where we've included website links and contact information. The video link for my extended conversation with Martin is also on the episode show page. And please subscribe to our Mod Golf YouTube channel while you're there. If you leave a comment, I promise to respond. Please join me next time when my guest is Shelly Finney, Senior Director of the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor partners, Golf Genius Software and British Columbia Golf, for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from golf's brightest innovators and influencers. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about our upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.